Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of CQP Moments. As always, I'm your host, the Coupon Queen Pen. Guys, I have an awesome guest today by the name of Farah and she is going to talk about how we can help our children learn. So let's take a moment out and I'll be right back with Farah. So guys, like I was saying, I have Farah DePayne of the CEC. And I know you've seen me doing some of her press conferences and rallies and, you know, in the Bronx, in New York City. But right now she and a group of other parents and educators are fighting for the children of the city. So Farah, please introduce yourself to my listeners. Wow. Good morning, Queen. And thank you so much uh, for the invitation. And good morning to all your listeners and the community of New York City and of the Bronx. My name is Farah Despain and I, I am the president of CEC8, the Community Education Council for District 8. And I'm also the president of the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group, which is basically a combination of all the CECs in the Bronx, which are CEC7, CEC8, CEC9, CEC10, CEC11, CEC12. Uh, we have combined our forces to fight for parents' voice and parent choice, and also for the education of our children, because in the Bronx, our children need to be educated in a better way and uh, in a way that will give the results and the outcomes that we as parents and as the Bronx community are looking for, as we are looking forward to the future generation of leaders and, and basically pillars of the society. Thank you, Queen. So, okay, for those that aren't in New York City, let me explain what she means by districts. <laughs> okay, what happens here is I know a lot of times you guys have, wherever you may live, you have a district, you have a superintendent, but because New York City is so vast, each neighborhood, each region, each area has its own district, which maybe is a set group of, it's a set bunch of communities. So Farah deals basically with district eight for the CEC and then for her for the parents advocacy group, she deals with a bunch of districts, which includes more than just district eight. So, okay, <laughs> just making that clear for everyone. And yes, those districts and zones do have their own leadership. You know, there are board, school boards and whatever for those districts. So yes, just clarifying how that works. Now, Farah, as what made you decide to get involved in the CEC? What what made you decide this was where you wanted to go? Ah, I actually think the CEC decided for me. Uh, I was uh, a DOE teacher uh, who was very concerned uh, about the, the, 
the turn, you know, and in terms of education for our kids, the direction perhaps is the better word of education in New York City. So uh, I started with a bunch of teachers doing activism uh, all the way to the White House when President Obama was president, or I should say under the administration of former President Obama. And, you know, we, we were organizing the kids and organizing the parents to just demand um, better education for our kids, both at the local and the national level. And then um, I, I came to a situation in my family where both my parents were sick and I had small children and I had to resign from the DOE to be home to take care of my children and my parents, uh, as often happens to us women. <laughs> and then uh, while I was doing that, uh, some principals approached me and was like, you know, girl, you need to be on the CEC. And I, and I said to report that at the time, uh, I did not know what the CEC was because um, before that it was just the New York City School Board. Uh, well, we're still the New York City School Board, but we're divided into all these little uh, CECs per districts, which you just explained uh, so well. Uh, and then I was like, okay, so I guess I will do my advocacy there. So I, you know, applied, I got elected, and it's been like that for a few years now. Wow. Okay. So how long before that were you a teacher in the Department of Education? Uh, I was in the, in the Department, of Department of Education for a good 15 years because uh, I resigned around 2014. And I started um, about 2000 or so. Mm -hmm. I moved to the Bronx in 1997. Uh, so yeah, I've been, I, I was in the DOE for quite a while. <laughs> okay, okay. So, okay, you get to the CEC and you were already advocating for students, for parents, for, so you were already boots on the ground. What, changes because you said you had never heard of the CEC before this and 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 a lot and I'll be real a lot of a lot of parents in New York City haven't still haven't so how, how what changes did you bring to the CEC when you started going forward yeah so um with the CEC, I think the, the, because, you know, I came on the CEC with a lot of knowledge and in terms of how the bureaucracy uh, works at the DOE, because I, there was a time when I was on the other side. Uh, and what I noticed uh, with at least our CEC, and I think CEC is across the city, is that often enough, parents were advocating um, for a system that they, they didn't fully understand. Um, and that they, they didn't understand that, you know, your principal, your teacher, your superintendent um, couldn't exactly make all the changes that you were asking for or they were asking for because it is such a bureaucracy, so heavily regulated that often enough we don't see uh, the people who are really making education policy. And they didn't understand that a lot of things were state laws uh, and that if you, there are certain changes that you, when you really want to make them, it is not enough 
uh, to speak to the teacher, or to the superintendent, or to the principal, because often enough, those people want the same thing that you want, right? But uh, they, they are not the one making um, decisions, uh, the decisions that truly impact our lives. So for me, it was very important to start bringing the stakeholders together, you know, um, the, the parents, the students, the elected officials, the bureaucrats, the, um, the community partners, and the stakeholders in education in terms of if you, if you do business with the DOE or, or what have you, or if you're just interested in education because uh, you know it does really honestly take a village to educate a child and it takes really all of us to educate all of our children. So the first right. thing that I tried to do was bring everyone together and and so that they can explain their stake in the education of our children and then we could from there create a vision of uh of what we would like to see in the bronx and that's how um, you know cc8 functioned for a while and then there was the opportunity uh, for all ccs to come together in the bronx simply because we were all you know trying to do the same thing in different ways and it was like wait a minute why don't we just come together and coming together was hard because the doe practices a system where um, parents cannot really get in touch with each other um, you know, it's so bizarre because they can sell uh, in contact information uh, to businesses and to charter schools and to all sorts of craziness. Yet when parent leaders need to get together and know one another, somehow they can't share information uh, with us concerning us or even give at least parent leaders the option uh, to be in contact with one another. So we had to go around in circles and find ways to contact one another and, and share, you know, uh, phone and email information so we could really uh, create um, that unity that we are trying to perfect right now under the under the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group. And that was work that really honestly wasn't necessary if the DOE would just allow, uh, you know, different CECs and parents uh, groups and president's councils, all these different entities, CPAC, you know, to just, you know, work together. But I guess they right. wouldn't want that because if they if they allowed it, then, you know, uh, we would actually, uh, you know, move education forward and shake the system, which they don't want, so. Wow. So, okay. One thing that I even found out as a parent is there are, especially in a place like New York state, there are two sets of rules and it sounds so crazy. You have the state rules, which say one thing for our students. And then in New York city, you have New York City rules, which say something similar, but can be more stringent. Um, like the simple fact that in New York State, the graduating age is 16. You know, the, the commensary age to for a child to go to school is 16. But at in New York City, the age is actually raised to 17. So any child that is not going to school by the age of 17 
still is considered in truancy unless you have proof proof of graduation. So what what differences do you see when you're you're going along with the state level and going along with the city level? Yeah, that is an incredible, uh, an incredibly good question. Uh, because even last night at the PEP with the panel for education policy meeting, uh, one of uh, leaders in CC8 and the Bonspine Leaders uh, Advocacy Group brought up to the chancellor and the PEP members, the PEP members, that even when it comes to the open meeting uh, laws, that the uh, New York City is playing games, right? Because in the middle of a pandemic, we should be allowed to meet virtually because the law uh, stipulates that we actually, and that was chosen way before the pandemic because apparently um, the law was put into place in 2011. So we're talking about 10 years later. uh, Wait, 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 wait a minute. You're saying this law was actually not put in in 2019, 2020. This was actually put in in 2011? Yes. So this was pandemic. Yes, pre-pandemic to allow counts, uh, you know, uh, groups like ourselves uh, governed by the uh, open meeting laws to meet uh, virtually. Of course, they have certain, uh, you know, uh, regulations around it, but to make the CECs and the uh, panel for education policy feel that in the middle of a pandemic, they must meet in person and they must have quorum in person before they could allow somebody who's joining by conference call or by video. Uh, well, it, well, it does specify that it needs to be by video, uh, but uh, video conference call, I guess we can say, uh, to, to count towards quorum, like to, to have the ability to vote. They are saying that you must have uh, or quorum first in person before those people who are joining uh, from elsewhere to be able to vote and for that to be counted. When the law obviously does not say that you need to have quorum in person. So what that what that means is that the CEC members who are afraid of the Delta right now, because I can tell you that at CEC 8, we postponed our meeting that was supposed to take place yesterday right. uh, to um to some date that we have not rescheduled yet because we were touched by the delta um variant in such a way that it was like oh my god this is unsafe right now um so and we wanted even before we knew that we were hit uh, by delta in such a major way in the community that we wanted to be sure that a few of us could meet in person you know, for social distancing purposes and safety purposes. And then the rest of us could be remote somewhere uh, within the city, right? And they said, no, you need to have six people in person. And that is not true. The law does not require for quorum to exist in person before uh, others can vote. And yesterday at the the PEP meeting, uh, one of our members actually, it, you know, said that to the chancellor and the PEP uh, to their faces. And that is just another example to the one that you just gave, where New York City seems to uh, play games with state rules and state regulations and state laws. And unfortunately for us parents, because a lot of us uh, parent leaders, uh, we come into these spaces 
and we don't know the laws, we don't know the rules, we don't know the right, right, right. And the DOE, all the time. yes, and the DOE imposes on us things that are not real, meaning that if we were to challenge them somewhere, the DOE's regulation would not hold water and we could actually win that case in, uh, in the court of law. Um, yet they make us believe that certain things are not possible. And I'll give you another example where it literally says that any you know, parent group or anybody can hold a candidate's forum at the school, right? The only thing is that all candidates must be invited because you cannot you know, um, sort of uh, endorse a particular um, uh, candidate. But right, right. Time, in other words, you can't you can't look like you're favoring one over the other. Exactly. But for a very long time, the DOE had parent leaders um, believe that they could never hold a candidate's forum. The principals will say, no, that's not allowed. Uh, the face uh, which deals with the which is a part of the DOE, the um, family and community empowerment division uh, of the DOE will have us believe that we cannot do that. And at CEC8, because we wanted to do that, we had to go and do the research, right? And show them, yes, we can, right? And, uh, and, and that is why this year, even though we, uh, we, we wanted to do it at CEC8, but once I became a member of the of BONSPAG, the, the BONSPAG Leaders Advocacy Group, we decided to do it uh, as, you know, as Bronx CECs. So we held several candidates forums with the candidates for mayor and uh, for city council and for borough president. But if it had been to the DOE, uh, if it had been up to the DOE, we would never have been able to do that because they convinced parents somehow that they were not allowed to do that. And, and my question is, how do you call us parent leaders and we are advocating for the needs of our children and advocating for the needs of our schools, yet we cannot interact with the people who make education policy so that you can- That is scary. As, as, that is very scary. So scary. So that you as the Department of Education can do whatever you want so that there's no check and balance. And so if I had a message to send to parents at, at all along the lines of the question that you just asked is that, Educate yourself on the rights that you have and the, and the laws and the rules and, and, and the regulations that exist around education and education leadership so you know what you can and cannot do and never, ever, ever, ever take the Department of Education's um, interpretation of the laws uh, of those laws as reality, because they will twist them and turn them into whatever they want. And, and, and when they do that, you will not be able to advocate for your children's education effectively. Agreed, agreed. So, okay, like she said, you keep hearing us say the DOE, and we are referring to the Department of Education for anyone that is a little, <laughs> a little confused. We are referring to the Department of Education, those who have been dealing with the Department of Education for a while. We just say DOE because it's easier, faster, and most people know what we we're, we're talking about. So just in case you're a little confused, that's what we mean. Now, the other thing, I, I, I love the fact that you're talking about educating parents. And I've even had parents that come from upstate New York um, and they don't realize 
that again, with the changes in New York City, even with high school students, that the credits, the testing, a lot of this is different. And credits may not transfer over. There are certain requirements that we have as far as testing. How do you feel about that? Because I, I mean, it, it, in, in a place where testing may not have been required, now you're requiring a child to have this added stress of a whole bunch of testing in order, let's even say, because people do it all the time, in order to finish the last year of high school. Yeah, that's also a very good question. Geez, you're really putting me on the spot today. <laughs> um, well, let, let, let me first say that this goes back to, at least in New York City for now, um, uh, goes back to this idea of mayoral control, right? Where uh, the mayor is making decisions uh, for the Department of Education, uh, even though he's not an education expert. Right, because the chancellor basically has to do whatever the mayor says. And obviously, if you're the chancellor and you don't want to do what the mayor says, then you have to give up, you know, your chancellorship. Uh, that's number one. And and I think it's dangerous um, to have somebody who is not an educator be in charge of education. And I don't know how much uh, how much more I can stress that. But it is dangerous to have somebody who is not a, an educator be in charge of the education of our children. So in other words, you don't want a cook working on your engine of your car. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I think we all, we all kind of feel the same way. Right. And to have education really be at the whim of politics. You know, with every new mayor, there's a new chancellor and the policy changes and all these things, you know, all the rules change and become crazy. And all of that, uh, we lose the one essential thing. What is best for our children? What is best for the education of our children? And th that gets lost. Uh, that's first and foremost. Now, I have to tell you that as, as an educator, I am not against all assessments, right? Because uh, educators do know do need to know where the children are uh, in order to better educate correct, them. Correct, correct. What I idea that people think the only way to assess is an exam. And I can tell you that when I was in the classroom for the DOE, I was the kind of teacher that never really gave exams. If I, if I told you that I gave you an exam, it was usually uh, something that I did to prepare you for a project that really didn't count as an exam. And it was something maybe that was part of the do now as you're waiting for kids to come into the classroom and settle down. Uh, but I really believe in um, project-based education so that you can send the students out there to discover and create and come back to you with something new because I think the kind of education that we have going on right now in New York City and, and throughout the country really is that we have set some kind of arbitrary standard and we are telling the kids, you know, you need to reach this and you need to reach that, be able to do this and do that, blah, blah, blah. And we don't take into consideration what the kids themselves 
can produce, what they actually can come up with in terms of being critical thinkers and, and people who, who, who can um, come up with concepts. So I think it's, it's fundamentally important that we reimagine what education is so that when we are talking about assessment, we are not really talking about you know pen and paper and multiple test uh, you know choice exams, but rather multiple choice exams, but rather giving the children the opportunity to really uh, create and bring new things uh, uh, to, to the table when it comes to. Um, you know, whether it's math or technology or, or what have you. And, and I, I am a firm believer in vocational and technical education because I think we waste a lot of time uh, trying to teach kids things that they may never use in their lives. Not that those things are not important because they do teach you uh, to retain information and to think about information, but it is critical that we start uh, creating um, a, a, an educational system that actually truly prepares kids for career and college if they should, should decide to go to college because they're not mutually exclusive, right? You can graduate with a, right, a right. trade, a skill, and then you can still choose to go to college. And for us um, in the underserved communities where we're also battling economic heavy economic disparities and where we are battling you know, inequity and so many other things, it is so important that our kids uh, come out of high school ready to work because they have a skill, they have a trade, and can right. choose to go uh, to college if they choose to either to get uh, higher degrees in that trade or that skill that they have, uh, you know, that certificate or diploma that they have earned, or to study something else while they can work um, you know, to feed themselves as they are going to college and graduate school and so on and so forth. And, and for me, I'm very concerned uh, in places like the Bronx where kids, you know, whether they graduate at 16 or 17 or 18, because, you know, you do have these kids who can graduate early, uh, that after that graduation, if they didn't get into college or didn't want to go to college because, you know, um, family issues sometimes delay, you know, at, at college uh, admission. Uh, or attendance and and that now they have no way of supporting themselves and no way of being um uh, con con uh, you know uh, of being real contributors to society because they didn't receive that skill so i think when we are talking about education for underserved communities that are very poor and that the parents may not necessarily be very well educated uh for whatever reason that we are we are educating kids who are ready uh, to assume uh, uh, a certain um, uh, what can I say a certain role in the society in their families the minute that they they, they graduate uh, and and so for me it, it is very very important that. Uh, the mayor alone is not making those decisions, that communities are at the table, that parents are at the table, students are at the table, as we are redesigning education and education specifically for underserved communities, because this thing of one size fits all, uh, that's nonsense. It needs to, we need to stop thinking that way, because different students, different um, 
you know, circumstances, different families, different circumstances. And we need to create a multifaceted educational system that can actually respond to the educational needs. And, and, and that's honestly the economic needs uh, 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 and the cultural needs of different communities and different students and different families. Wow. So are you, are you saying that all kids don't learn the same? Who would have thought that? Yes, who would have said that? <laughs> uh, yes, guys, I am being a bit, you know, you know, one of my one of my languages that I am fluent in is sarcasm. But I I've been I've been touting this for a while. All students do not learn the same way. So, okay, you you've been on the forefront of this. What is one thing? Because we always know that one parent that is running up to the school, whether they're on the PTA, whether they're just making sure that their kid gets what the resources that they need. But we know that all parents don't know how to navigate this. So where can a parent start? That's a, another very good question, and and I think uh, one that is uh, a little difficult to answer, right? Because uh, in the box, you know, it, it, it's difficult because information is not really at our fingertips as it should be for a lot of reasons. For example, a lot of our parents, um, you know, don't speak English. Uh, a lot of our parents don't own a device. Uh, meaning in terms of, you know, whether it's an iPad or a laptop or a desktop or what have you. Um, and then because community, you know, like we used to know community <laughs> maybe a hundred years ago, really doesn't exist where people really know their neighbors and really talk to each other. It, it's very hard for parents who may not be in the know to be in the know. Um, because where are they going to get that information from? And we know even, you know, in the principal's uh, uh, manual, uh, they are supposed to involve uh, parents. And, and, you know, if you're on the PA and the PTA, the SLT, the, C, the DLT, uh, you know, uh, excuse me for all these acronyms, but these are, you know, uh, school leadership uh, team, you know, district leadership uh, team, parent association or parent teacher association. Uh, God knows there's so just so many acronyms and so many parent groups out there that first of all, parents are confused as to which group to join if they even know the existence of those. And then principals really just don't do a very good job of uh, giving that information to parents. And, and, and I don't blame the principals so much because part of the problem is that the principals are inundated with so much work that I don't know that they can do the administrative work and still do uh, the community and parent work that they need to do in order to educate parents. So I think, um, you know, the DOE came up with, you know, PCs, parent coordinators, who are supposed to be that bridge between parents and the schools. But I can tell you there are some parent coordinators out there who are just fabulous, but also they get inundated uh, with uh, because a lot of them end up doing um, the work of the missing secretary or the missing, you know, um, 
dean or, or whatever that you have that they end up doing so many other things in the school building that they are not really doing their job as parent coordinators often oh, enough. Wow. So oh, wow. it's a very convoluted uh, system. And how do parents who don't know get information? So what my advice to parents would be, first of all, try to speak to your principal, try to speak to your parent coordinator, but more importantly, find out when those parent association meetings are going on and, and become a part of that. Uh, find out what the CC is, become a part of that, or your, you know, your school board, become a part of that. But what I want to urge them to do is to start creating education pods, education communities, so that they can begin to educate each other. And, and you know, I, and, and I'm also a PA president, so I do understand the need uh, for parents uh, in parent associations to do the big sales and you know to try to raise money uh, for graduations and all these things those things are wonderful and and i'm grateful that their parents doing that um, those things but we need to understand that parent associations are leadership groups and we need to educate ourselves on what is possible so that we can really begin to push the principles and push the school culture to really uh, start addressing the major issues that keep our children from learning the best that they can learn, right, right. as best as they can learn, and to create that school culture. So I would say parents need to first and foremost inform themselves and start creating these powerful, powerful parent groups that are more in, that are interested in more than just baked cells, in more than just, you know, making sure that graduation, you know, runs well and stuff like that, but really challenging the principal and challenging the superintendent and in New York City, the executive superintendent and the chancellor and the mayor and the elected officials so that uh, we, we can get what we really need. Because often enough, what happens is that a lot of our parents will get into those uh, parent groups and they're very involved, you know? They are at every meeting and, and they do a lot for the school, but it, it's not enough. Whatever that they do is just not enough to advance the, the new direction that education needs to, uh, to take. And, and, and I would beg them and implore them uh, to become more active in, 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 in that part of education advocacy. Uh, and, and that has to start with just getting to know the rules, getting to know the school, getting to know the different parent entities in, in the school, uh, creating uh, collaborative spaces uh, with principals and teachers and parent coordinators, uh, discovering uh, what the problems are in that particular school and but also within the district and then within the city because, you know, and within the state and then nationally because nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think once we can do that, then we can really say that, you know, we're, we're taking education where we need to take it. Wow. Okay. And let me tell you something. Farrah knows exactly what she's talking about. If you have not been watching the news in New York City, you've been missing out because this woman has been on every channel from News 12 to NBC fighting for the children of the Bronx and New York City. So I, I do have to say that thank you, Farah, for that, because you're putting out there 
the message that it's not just one parent, that it's not just one community, it's everybody and everybody is involved. So now I will say this because like I said, I met you through press conferences and the first press conference was about, you know, remote learning. And this is still a fight with the remote learning. First, it was there wasn't enough remote learning. We didn't have, and and I remember we didn't have enough devices. The it was just so much to do. But now it seems like there has been a remote option taken away. What we had before is not going to be put in place this coming fall. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, and thank you for asking that question, because I, I think beyond uh, the idea of parent voice and parent choice, right? Because a lot of people are just not ready to go back into the buildings. Um, Delta is real. Uh, COVID is real. Uh, have, uh, vaccination hesitance uh in our community is real for a lot of historical reasons uh and that cannot be overcome just because you tell people uh you, you go get the vaccine it's good for you or i'm giving you 100 for the vaccine some people you know for whatever reason might take you up on that but the people who are truly afraid and truly uh have reasons to be reticent are not going to listen to that so we know that vaccination hesitance is, is real. We know that uh, the schools are overcrowded, uh, that the schools are co-located. So when we're talking about mitigation me measures uh, in terms of social distancing, we know that's going to be impossible. Uh, right, we talk about right. mental health all the time for our students. Well, let's be real, before the pandemic, the DOE could not address mental health for our kids because you know what? A lot of our kids ended up suspended. They ended up in the prison uh, to, I mean, uh, the school to prison pipeline. Uh, so uh, we know that, you know, they, they didn't understand mental health for our kids uh, before uh, the pandemic. I doubt sincerely that they are going to understand it now, especially that the mayor and the chancellor have no real plan right now uh, in terms of what the return to school will look like. So it is absolutely for all these problems that we're talking about and, and the fact that they are kids, uh, actually it, in some kids it will be healthier if they go back uh, to right. society and go back into the buildings. But there are some kids, the opposite is true where they are so right. afraid, so anxious that they need to be home a little bit longer and because they need to feel safe, right? right. So wait, let me, let me, because you said something very, very poignant, which is the mental health aspect. How, how, and it sounds so crazy and I know you may not even be able to answer this, but the simple fact that this was not a priority prior to the pandemic, we know we are now seeing adults with mental health issues due to the pandemic. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. 
So how do we now address the pressures and the issues of our children having to go back into a building when we didn't have the resources to address what they needed prior to this? And like I said, I know you may not be answered, able to answer this question, but this is a big thing. Well, I, I will try to partially answer it, right? Before I make my bigger point about the women <laughs> option, uh, uh, is that first of all, it, it is wrong to assume, right, as the mayor does, that it is only the kids uh, who have mental health issues due to the pandemic, right? The parents are also suffering from that. But more importantly, because when we think about the need to go back to school, right? Uh, for the ones that who are not ready, we're talking about teachers and principals and other education staff members who are also who are also traumatized, who also uh, need help um, managing the 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 aftershocks, right? Of the well, we can even talk about aftershocks of the pandemic because we're still in it, right? Uh, so my question to your question, right, uh, is that how does the, the, the DOE, the UFT, United uh, um, Federation of Teachers, how do they, uh, and even the CSA in terms of the, uh, the unions for the principals, how is it, what is, what is their plan to make sure that the mental health of students, of teachers, of principals, of parent coordinators, of school aides, of paras, to make sure that the whole community is being attended to, uh, men, uh, in, you know, in terms of mental health, because this is the truth. You can't just say to people, uh, you know, be ready to go, and then they are ready to go. Be healthy and right, healthy. right, right, right. So, in terms of addressing. Uh, the mental health of school communities as a whole, there is no plan, right? Because you, you know the saying that your psychiatrist also has a psychiatrist, your psychologist, right? Also has a psychologist, psychologist right? right, right, <laughs> right. So it's like, okay, the, the mayor is rushing to do this, but what is really in place to support everyone? And and for me, and I think. Um, Generally speaking, because time is such a big thing and that we, we, I guess we fill it up with so many things that may be uh, not so important to our development that we don't know how important time is. But I, just like I used to say in the classroom, the best thing that you can do for the education of, the, of a child is to give the child time to actually get it. For some right. children, that may mean right. two minutes. For some, it might mean three months, but you have to give that time. Right. So when it comes to the mental health of school communities, and I mean all the, you know, the people in a school community, time, right? Give people the time to heal and to find ways that will be healing for them. So for some, it might mean returning to the school. For some, it might be being at home remotely. For some, it might be dance and music and the arts. For some, it might be a, you know, a, a, a mental health expert that they talk to all the time. Uh, so whatever that it is, we need to give people the time to find it out and then implement it in their lives and start right. creating the myth that the Department of Education can solve 
problems that it cannot solve or that schools can solve problems that are communal problems that they actually cannot solve. That's number one. So, so we are not prepared, but just in terms of the remote option itself, right? The remote learning itself. My thing is, what is uh, Bill de Blasio trying to do to education? Are we trying to return education to an, uh, an archaic and an anachronistic state where we are so backwards that we cannot move with the times? Because right now, remote learning, uh, the remote option really has taught us so much about how some kids can be educated and educated for the better because there's some kids who actually flourish under the remote option. Why would you right. want them to go back in the classroom when the data proves and the stories prove, right, that they actually do better uh, at home remotely than they did in a, in a classroom? And, and that the remote option actually did a lot for school cultures too, because in a lot of our schools, there's a lot of bullying that a lot of these kids were able to evade because they were not, they didn't, to con, didn't have to confront their bullies face to face. So my right. question is, why is it that the mayor, if colleges and universities have been doing this for a very long time, that you can actually go to school online. If there are parents who are willing to be home with their children and, 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 and teach their children remotely, why wouldn't the mayor and the chancellor want to give those parents and those children that option, especially when we know for some of them that is actually the best thing to do. And we need to dispel the myth that for every child, somehow that the best education is face-to-face -face with a teacher in the classroom because that is not true for every child. And the other thing that the remote option actually made me uh, become aware of because I was speaking to uh, a fellow teacher and, and, you know, because we started our careers around the same time. And one of the things that uh, we, came, uh, we came out of is like part of the failure uh, of, of the remote action for some kids in some schools is actually a, a bigger failure on the part of the Department of Education because we have failed uh, for decades to teach children to be self-directed learners. So that because when when kids and for some kids and for some kids that's absolutely necessary because what do you mean by self-directed learner? What what is yes, that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> so and and I've done that because some kids they need you to hold their hands, right? And like first you do this and then you do that and then you do this and that's how they're gonna get it. But you know some kids you have to tell them what it is that you want from them and just let them go. And they will go and they will do the research, they will read, they, 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 they will watch the proper documentaries and come back sometimes with knowledge that the teacher himself or herself doesn't have. And, and, and that is uh, a self-directed learner where that child can actually know, this is what I want to learn about. So I'm going to go and do the research, go to the library, get that particular book, ask for my parents, you know, to, uh, to buy me this book or go read a newspaper article on it or, or what have you, or go create uh, something with other children that can, um, you know, give that outcome so they can learn more about it. Go do a science experiment all on their own. So we have been so used to spoon feeding kids 
and not making them self-directed learners and lifelong learners, right? Because we know that learning doesn't stop, but we have created a culture in the DOE where not only teachers are teaching to a test, but Kids are also learning just to pass a test, just to get that report card uh, and, and be promoted to the next uh, level. Then, then we are not really teaching kids the value of, of learning on their own and wanting to learn all the time, at, uh, you, you know, whether you have a teacher with you or not. So what remote action did for a lot of kids that we're not even paying attention to is that it and, and and some kids actually said it at the PEP uh, in July that they were able to not only continue their work with the you know the teacher and the you know the class, but then they found time to pursue other interests because they were able to to use uh, the computer at home to sort of investigate and, and explore other ideas, other things that they wanted to learn about. And some students and even students at the PEP talked about how they got accepted to certain colleges or now are more sure of what they wanna do in the future because they were afforded that time and that space to be able to research and learn about things that they were interested in, but that are very academic in nature. So. When you think about the benefits of the remote option, the, what it did for certain families and for certain kids, kids who had no direction before, but now found it because they were able to use uh, the remote option and, and, and those devices uh, to their benefit. Again, the question remains, why would Mayor Bill de Blasio and the new chancellor prevent children from being able to pursue that avenue. So we have a right. whole host of reasons why the remote option should always be an option in this pandemic and beyond. I, I, I agree. I, wow. Okay. So I, I, you, you're preaching to the choir here. I have no, I have no argument for that. <laughs> but okay. So here was something that I, even I had noticed. Um, and in some instances, I saw it rather necessary, but in other instances, I didn't, where I was hearing parents saying they were receiving emails at the end of the school year saying, you must return the device to the school. Um, and I guess that was the first portion of taking away the remote option, but here, we're also hearing the mayor say things like, well, if there is a snow day or inclement weather, you know, we will have remote. But if you've taken away the devices, how can these children even have that option? You know, it's, it's one of those things of, they're saying, well, we're, we're, we're doing away. And, and that was another thing that they're doing away with snow days, because now if the children have devices, there is no need for them to be without schooling for the day. But in, and I would say 85% of parents that I've spoken to were saying they had to return their child's device. And like I said, I could see it in the case where a child is graduating, they're changing schools, but 
if the child is in the first grade and they're just going to the second grade in the same school, why are they returning the device? And that is a very good question that I think probably that one needs to go to the mayor because I too do not understand it. And, and, and it, again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, the mayor wants to go back to normal where so many of these kids didn't have devices and didn't have access uh, to anything that could help them be better students. And the fact that, uh, and, and a member of, our, of the CC8, Miss um, Gina Staten, who spoke for us at the PEP, uh, she spoke on behalf of um, the Bones Parent Leaders Advocacy Group and CC8, um, brought up last night is that why would you want to go back to normal when we know now because of the remote option and because of devices, so many kids and so many families were able to advance their situations. And for me, and I cannot speak for Mayor Bill de Blasio, I, you know, I was somebody who campaigned for the mayor, uh, who, you know, who believed in the mayor because he told me he believed in education when we had our one-on-one, -on -one, when he was just starting uh, to run uh, for, the, for the mayor of New York City. So I can't understand who this person has become because the right. man I knew is not the mayor who is speaking now. What right. I, the only speculation that I can have is that the powers that be, including the mayor of New York City, do not want the advancements of our children and the advancement of our communities and especially poor communities of color. And by that, I mean black, I mean, you know, Latinx, I mean Asian and, and, you know, so many other folks that if I forget to mention your identity, it's not, it's because I'm a, a little bit under pressure as time is winding down, but it means all folks who found themselves to be non-white and also poor and also have to, uh, you know, to depend on the public school system and on government agencies in order to not only continue to survive, but to advance themselves. And why would a progressive mayor not want to uplift those folks is news to me and something that I don't understand. But that what I will ask the parents to do, and some parents have managed to do that over the summer and did manage to keep um, their devices for their individual schools, because then it became a, a question of, you know, whether the principal would allow it or not. And many compassionate uh, principals did allow it. So uh, it's to not be silent and to raise your voice. You know, and join your PA, join your PTA, your uh, CEC, become a member of the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group and find other parents that you can fight with for uh, the betterment of the, of the education of your child and all, of, and all of our children so that a mayor like that cannot get away with it. And, um, you know, and DOE bureaucrats who think that way cannot get away with and principals and superintendents on the ground and executive superintendents on the ground who think like that cannot get away with it. Because at the end of the day, the only people who can truly fight for us and for our children, it comes back down to us. We have to fight for us 
and for our own children. The mayor is not going to do it for us. Uh, the DOE is not going to do it for us. So parents, uh, this is a call to action for you. Get involved and let's fight together. Wow, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Farah, thank you so much. It has been amazing having you. All of her information will be in the show notes, guys, so you won't miss anything. This woman is a rock star when it comes to getting the parents together and fighting for the education of children. So awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Queen, for this opportunity. It was great being interviewed by you. And you're a tough, tough interviewer. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect those tough questions. Well, I hope I didn't grill you too badly. Uh, no, I, I, I hope, let me rephrase that. I hope I, uh, I rose to the occasion and answered the questions. Oh, you definitely them. did. You definitely did. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Farrah was really dropping some gems. So guys, if you are looking to figure out how to help your children more, how to help them during the school year and all this great stuff. All of her information will be in the show notes. And guess what? This doesn't just apply to New York City, New York State. It applies to other states as well. Because guess what? We all want to fight for our children. But as always, guys, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and happy shopping. Hi, this is Michelle Miller from Mentors on the Mic podcast, and you're listening to Coupon Queen Pin.